Good morning. Our reading today comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, you are the son of God. Tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up into their hands so, that you, they will, so you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put your Lord God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Let me say something that you uh, probably agree with. Anyone uh, of us who uh, sets out with an ambitious and good aim uh, or a noble and loving pursuit or an important and admirable goal, anyone who sets out with something like that will face immense challenges along the way. Ambitious and good aim, noble and loving pursuit, important, admirable goal, you're going to face immense challenges along the way. I don't think I have to uh, spend a lot of time trying to convince you of that reality. Um, It's just part of the the nature of our world. Whatever the implications and whatever that points to, it's it's just part of how we have come to experience reality. So just to think about a bunch of, of, of things in those categories um, that present immense challenges. Uh, keeping a lifelong marriage commitment, like thriving in long-term covenanted intimacy to a spouse or even in, in friendship to other people to, 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 to make relationships last, to, to feed the hungry in our, in our city, to um, really care for in a material way those who are in deep need around us, right? Right? Already, like right away, the immense challenges begin to pop into our minds. I want to raise my children with love and patience. I sense immense challenges around that at, at particular t- moments in my life. I want, I, you want to write a book or uh, some other uh, long-term creative endeavor. You want to be honest and excellent in your career. You want to find a cure for a disease. There's um, a couple of out there that would be near the top of the list right now if you're doing that. Um, I want to translate the Bible into a language uh, that doesn't have a translation of the scriptures yet, right? Uh, I, I want to start a company that is profitable but also does tremendous good for our world and for my neighbors. Uh, I want to make it through Tuesday without losing my temper. I want to give up junk food and start exercising. I, I want to stop ever looking at porno- uh, pornographic images on the internet. 
I want to be kind and patient with those who disagree with me politically. Like any of those things that you pick out along the way that, that we would say, okay, this is a good aim. This is a noble thing. This is a loving and an important goal. You are going to face immense challenges along the way. Good things are challenging. When I was a kid, like the simplest way that this regularly occurred to me was around food. Like I regularly marveled at the fact um, that everything that was good for me, I didn't like. And, and everything that was bad for me was amazing. And I've seen that principle show up over and over again. And of course our appetites can be trained, but what does it say about me? What does it say about you? What does it say about the world? That good things are so challenging. So I said I was going to say something that I think you'll agree with. Now I want to say something that I'm not sure if you'll agree with. You may or you may not. But I'm not sure either way if you'll think about it in the context of what we've been saying so far. In a letter written in the latter part of his life, the Apostle Peter, who we know quite a bit about, uh, we know a lot of high points in his life, we also know a notoriously bad and, and well-known low point that he denied Jesus right at the crucial moment after Christ was, uh, was, uh, was arrested on the night he was um, being tried before he went to the cross, um, even after he had promised that he wouldn't do that. He, in, and later in his life, he writes these words in a letter to the church. This is 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 9. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Right? Peter did not always embody that. Uh, humble yourselves, under, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Now, the, the part I want to draw our attention to for just a few moments is where it says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, hang, hang on a minute. Like, what, what do we say about that in in? This post-enlightenment, you know, post-everything, Brooklyn 2020, we're very, you're all very educated and sophisticated, I can tell. Uh, world, be alert. The devil is roaming around looking for someone to devour. You have an enemy who is seriously looking to derail your life. Really? The three best Val Kilmer movies of the 90s are, and this is pretty clear, I think, um, Tombstone, True Romance, and The Ghost in the Darkness. Now, some of you guys are going to want to bring up Heat. That happened to me earlier this morning in this discussion. But I don't think it's as good as those three. It's super long. And I want to say I'm sorry to say The Saint does not hold up as well as you think it does. Um, uh, top Gun was the 80s, and uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was 2005. So our top three for Val Kilmer in the 90s is Tombstone, True Romance, and The Ghost in the Darkness. Now, you may not know of those three, The Ghost in the Darkness. May, who, raise your hand if you are familiar with The Ghost in the Darkness. The film. Okay, there's four of you. That's great. This illustration is going to kill. Um, <laughs> You'll remember from last week my Harry Potter reference. I'm right on top of sort of cultural relevance. Um, the Ghost in the Darkness is a fictionalized, so it's, it's fictionalized, they take a lot of liberties, but it's based on a true story um, about the Savo man-eaters, which were two Savo lions that attacked and killed workers in Savo, Kenya during the building of the Uganda-Mombasa Railway in East Africa, 1898. So 
I know you guys are super familiar with that time uh, and that, that bridge being built, but there was uh, these lions that were pr- prowling about. And I'll just tell you, if you go back and look at the ghost in the darkness, Val Kilmer slays, okay? And the lions slay more. Um, when I hear Peter's instructions, because I watched that movie, I had the VHS and I watched it like 100 times. Um, when I hear Peter's instruction, I can't help but think about the ghosts in the darkness. Think about the camps of like, once these lions started to attack, the fear that sort of gripped the whole project and, and these camps and these workers sleeping through the night and gathering around fires and setting up perimeter fires so that the lions wouldn't come through and how intense it was. Everyone was like, we have to finish this project, but we're terrified of this, of this, of this reality that's surrounding us. And I can't imagine one of them, one of the workers after the fear had begun to grip the camp sort of like letting loose one one night and getting drunk and then wandering out into the night like to challenge the, the danger that was all around them. Like it just seems, when you watch the ghost in the darkness, that just seems absurd. But I can't hear Peter's instruction and not think about that. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So whatever he's talking about, there's some sort of significant personal, intelligent, spiritual conflict going on that we need to be alert and thinking clearly to understand and to resist and to sort of thrive in the middle of. It's interesting that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, especially when Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? There's always sort of that like uh, imposter thing going on when we, when we deal with the enemy. It's always a substitute God, always a way to get at the things God offers, but in a different way. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So Peter seems to think that whatever else is is true about this reality, that everyone experiences this type of spiritual contest of of, of temptation, of of challenge, that the enemy is, is real. The enemy is an enemy to our faith, an enemy to our soul, an enemy to God, and that reality is experienced all the world, uh, all around the world. So Peter compares this to the, a prowling lion, and that adds something to what we've already said, doesn't it, right? Like good things are challenging. We know we set out in, in a long-form noble aim, and we run into profound resistance. That says something about us. It says something about the nature of the world. But then, if good things are challenging, even if you and I don't always agree on what is good, Peter seems to be saying that God things are actively contested. And when I hear about the kingdom of God, when I hear the kingdom of God described, especially if it's described really well, um, there's mercy We sing out like mercy reigns, like the throne and authority of the universe has mercy sitting on it. Like the highest word about your life would be a word of mercy. Forgiveness pours out healing from the worst things we've ever done and the worst things that have been done to us. Freedom, that I don't have to be trapped in my mind or my actions to to anything Love, justice, kindness, generosity, truth, but none of these things simply as disembodied or separated ideas embedded in relationships, embedded in in communities of love, in covenant love, that the same love that exists in the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, has extended out to us. When I hear the kingdom of God describe mercy and love and forgiveness and truth, I want it. 
being truly loved by God, loving God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving my neighbor as myself, I hear that, I want that, but I don't find that it always comes easily in my life. Do you? There's something in me that resists God and God's kingdom. Not always to the exact same degree, but I, I, I find it as a reoccurring reality. The scriptures refer to it as the flesh. It's an operating system in my life that doesn't want to take God into account, that simply wants to go off just my own resources or the resources of the world I find around me. There are things in me, but there's also things in the world that resist God and God's kingdom. Right, we see this, we know this to be true. We look at our history as human beings and we see embedded systemic evil. Racism, classism, corruption, war, rumors of war. So there's stuff in me, there's stuff in the world. And then there are spiritual forces and maybe this is the one because we're so educated and so sophisticated, right? Uh, of course, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not knocking us, but we know everything. And so maybe we have a little harder time making the leap to supra-personal intelligent beings that are working evil in the world. But the scriptures are unflinching about it. It says, this is reality. You can say that there's something in me, there's something in the world, and then there are spiritual forces. The way that the scriptures talks about these three forms of resistance is the flesh, the world, and the devil. So I'm not going to, even though I always feel a little tempted to do this, I know we have people across the belief spectrum in this room. And, 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 and something that's so easy for someone over here to believe, maybe just the absolute most absurd thing in the world you've ever heard. But I'm not going to spend a ton of time trying to convince you if you don't already believe in the existence and reality of actual spiritual opposition. That Satan and his demons are real. <laughs> But I do want to say, if you have too easily swallowed the post-enlightenment, secular humanist party line that the world is utterly disenchanted, I think you might need to think again. I've said, we're in a world, sometimes we're practical, like practical disbelief in God is often thought of as sophistication. And, and I want to remind you of an interview that C.S. Lewis did back in the 40s. He was asked whether... Um, whether as an Oxford professor he could really believe in the devil. This is after the time he had written the screw tape letters. Um, and Lewis says this, now if by the devil you mean a power opposite to God and like God, self-existent from all eternity, the answer is certainly no. There is no uncreated being except God. God has no opposite. The proper question is whether I believe in devils. I do. That is to say, I believe in angels, and I believe that some of these, by the abuse of their free will, have become enemies of God. Satan, the leader or dictator of devils, is the opposite, not of God, but of Michael. There is a tremendous spiritual conflict that runs through the length of human history. Uh, it is a spiritual conflict, but it touches every part of the material world. Late, late, later in Lewis's writing in Narnia, he, he's talking to one of the kids, and, and Aslan, uh, it comes out that he only tells you your story, basically, like he doesn't tell you everyone else's story. And, uh, and this is true when it comes to angels and demons. Like, we don't know everything about the backstory. It is intentionally vague, it seems, in the scriptures as to what's going on with these creatures. But something about the created order, before the created order that we are aware of, there was a conflict in the spiritual realm that we are still experiencing the results of. 
Its worst effects have bent and warped and twisted human nature to live in selfishness, to live in violence, to try and be our own gods, to dominate one another. We have seen, as I said, manifest in all, all manner of systemic brokenness, of, of, of greed, from, from, from slavery to the Holocaust. We, we survey human history and we're like, something really dark is going on here. In the first pages of the scripture in Genesis, this spiritual conflict comes into focus. It is woven through Israel's story as they are led out of slavery in Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea into this place of promise that God is carrying them. There's a tremendous struggle for the soul of the people in the wilderness. And then as Jesus' public life is beginning, what we read is Luke 4, 1 and 2, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So this isn't something that he stumbles upon. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. The other translation is the waste places. Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. So a couple of things just to note as we get into the details here. Um, This is right after the baptism of Jesus. This is right after the voice of the Father has spoken affirmation over Jesus' life. Before any of the exploits of his public ministry, the Father says over Jesus' life, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the other picture that we see is that the Spirit descends on Jesus so that everything that follows after is led by and full of the Holy Spirit. So we've, we've talked about those two things a lot, but this says the Spirit is present as he is driven into the wilderness to face the reality of the spiritual conflict that has marked human history. He experiences the conflict where many of us experience it in temptation. So just to think about what we're talking about when we talk about temptation, we mean a profound urge or a lure to leave behind the good we have set out for and settle for something less. So you don't have to be Christian to experience temptation, right? You can have some other good aim that you set up in your life and you're tempted to take a shortcut uh, or or, or to give it up altogether because of profound resistance that you experience. But if you begin to think about it in the way the scriptures talk about it, temptation is an invitation to try and meet a deep need of our life in a way that is a shortcut, that doesn't acknowledge God. It is an invitation and opportunity to play God in our own life and to separate ourselves from the word of God and the character of God. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about temptation. So a couple of just like details to notice. Jesus is going to face temptation. We only have some of it recorded, but it says that it went on for 40 days. I'm going to argue, very briefly argue, that he's recreating that moment in Genesis that we're familiar with. I'm also going to argue with with others in both cases um, that that he is even more clearly recreating Israel's moment in the wilderness. He's coming first as Israel's Messiah and then as Savior of the world. Jesus resists temptation in this story. But I think we can know that if he had not, if he had caved in, if he had taken a shortcut, then all the rest of the victory we see in Jesus' life would not have occurred. If he can't win in this moment, he cannot go to the cross and win our redemption. So he's going to show us what it looks like to fight temptation. And that is very helpful because in Jesus' case it works. And so maybe if we follow in Jesus' steps, we can also find ways to resist temptation in our own life. But he also shows that he knows what it's like to be a human being. 
that he knows what it's like to be tempted in every single way that you and I are tempted. And, and one of the last things I'm gonna say, this is a bit of a spoiler for the end of the sermon, is that the victory he wins can actually be a victory we share in and hide in and rest in. So a couple of details from the story. Before you even get into the exact temptation of how Jesus resists, we're told almost casually that Jesus was fasting. Uh, it's a pretty massive understatement in my opinion in the, in the text. He ate nothing during those days, 40 of them, and at the end of them he was hungry. Really? Tell me more. He was, he was hungry after not eating, right? We're in the season of Lent, and, and this is one of the anchor stories of the season of Lent. In some responses, in some ways, this is why we respond to this season of preparation by fasting our, our, ourselves. So I wanna say just a few things about fasting as, as we're getting started. It's one of the, we have shared practices that we're involved in every single season, and one of our shared practices for the season of Lent is fasting. So we're gonna fast together during this 40 days. We're also going to, to put love in action by practicing kindness and acts of service to, to our, our, our neighbors. And so we're not just worried about our own hearts, of course, but, but let's just say a couple of things about fasting. Fasting might feel like an intimidating activity, especially if this is your introduction for it. Go into the wilderness and don't eat anything for 40 days. No, thank you. That's some sort of spiritual elite thing that I'll never try. Like, at least I'm going to need a really significant and nice juicer and a place to plug it in. But I wanna say this, fasting, however intimidating it seems to you on the surface, is a spiritual discipline that is open to everyone. Maybe there are certain spiritual disciplines that like, are, are not gonna be yours. You may, you may never pray in a language you don't know in your entire life. You may never pray in tongues. You can, you can ask God to give that. You may never have an opportunity to regularly teach. Uh, there are, spirit, there are spiritual uh, uh, disciplines or, or spiritual gifts that may seem like they're out of, out of reach for you. But I wanna tell you this. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that is open to absolutely everyone. Not everyone will fast. But everyone can. Everyone can fast. Everyone can pray with their body as well as with their mind and heart. So, uh, the heart of fasting as a follower of Jesus is to give up something good to seek something greater. So to give up something good, to seek something greater, God and God's kingdom, and that's really important because sometimes when it comes to Lent, we sort of think about fasting like I'm gonna give up something that I kind of shouldn't be doing anyway. Like, and, and that's not exactly what the scriptures mean when, the, when it talks about, about fasting. Though it is certainly a good idea, when we give up something that is already damaging or sinful, that is not exactly fasting, that is repentance. So if you're like, for 40 days I'm not gonna lie at work. It's not a fast, sorry to say, that's repentance. Um, like, I'm gonna, I'm going to, I, I, you know, like, for 40 days, I'm not going to get uh, blackout drunk. For 40 days, not for me. That's also not a fast, that's repentance. Like, the, let's set aside these things that are eating us alive, devouring our lives, and, and repent. But fasting is when you set aside something good. Jesus is certainly not saying the most spiritual life is a life where you don't eat. Absolutely not. He's setting aside something good for something greater to say with his whole life, I'm hungry for the Father's way, for the Father's will. So the biblical record of fasting primarily involves willingly giving up food for a period of time as a response to a grievous sacred moment in life. 
I get that language from Scott McKnight, who wrote a book on fasting. Uh, he's a, he's a, uh, a theologian, a seminary professor. And uh, I like that language because it, it sets fasting as a response to the brokenness of the world. Because Jesus' disciples get criticized because they don't fast enough, according to the Pharisees. And he says, how can they fast when the bridegroom is with, is with them? Basically, like, they're in, they're, they're in a time right now uh, of growth and development. They're not in a time where they need to respond to a grievous, sacred moment. The time is coming when they will fast. And, and that's a, a, a teaching with some mystery around it. There's not a ton unpacked about that. But when we say grievous, sacred moment, we mean grievous in that it is related to the pain of the world. We, we, we exist in a reality where fasting takes place because we exist in a reality where brokenness is real and it presses in all around us. And it's not just a grievous moment, it's a sacred moment because we're believing that God can be found in the midst of the difficulty. That God is even looking for us in the midst of us. So things that you see in the scriptures, people responding to with fasting, things that I think it's appropriate for us to respond to with fasting are death, a, 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 a struggle or sin that we can't break free from. In this case, temptation, a fear, an imminent threat, a profound need, um, a, a, a sickness, a period of preparation that's also re relevant here, a time of seasonal renewal such as, such as Lent. So we respond to these moments with fasting. Fasting is almost always accompanied by prayer almost always accompanied by an increase in prayer. Very often it is also accompanied with extra time in God's word. It's as if that becomes our meal instead of our normal food. Our hope is for God to show up powerfully in the midst of this moment we're in and for God to show up powerfully in the midst of our life. So a couple of things, right? I'm just giving us some basics of fasting. We're gonna try to practice this together over the course of Lent. Some of you are already in the middle of things that you've, you've given up. But remember, Jesus has just received the affirmation of the Father. An author I really like says, Jesus' hair is still wet from his baptism. It is ringing in his ears that the Father has just said over his life, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So we know we do not fast so that God will love us. We do not fast so that God will affirm us with his love and care. God does not love you more when you fast. We do not fast also as an attempt to force God to do what we want, but more likely to align ourselves with what is going on in the heart of God. We fast to pray with our bodies as well as our mind and heart. We fast to draw near to God who promises that he will draw near to us. We, we fast to confess our need to express our hungry hunger for God to be present in our life, in our world. One more thing. I think this one is relevant to what's going on with Jesus right now. We, f we can fast to break unhealthy attachments or to, speak or to seek spiritual deliverance or breakthrough. I don't think Jesus was needing to break any unhealthy attachments, um, but the reality is that spiritual disciplines have different uses in the world. And maybe that's very obvious to us, especially when we think about like, what's encouragement for? to build someone up, to literally put courage in someone else, use it with our words to put courage in someone else, to build, to build them up. What, what, what's leadership for, right? Leadership is to help organize the resources of a community to go after a particular aim, right? We, we understand the utility of those spiritual gifts. What's generosity for? But when it comes to fasting, it's like, what is it for? Is it just sort of vaguely making me better? 
One of the utilities of fasting in the scriptures is that it is used to break certain things that have a grip on a community or a person's life, and that fasting is a way that we can ask for deliverance. And if you want an example of this, in Matthew 17, Jesus sends out his followers And he asked them to pray for people's healing and deliverance. And they come back and they've had some success, but they come back and they say, one of these people we experienced was overwhelmed, overwrought, was was possessed and we could not, they didn't experience any freedom when we pray for them. And Jesus almost immediately says, oh yeah, that kind does not come out except by fasting and prayer. Often Jesus is referring to spiritual realities as if the implications of them are just as real as like, any natural phenomenon in the world or natural law, like gravity or, or Newton's laws of thermodynamics, like, like the reality of, of spiritual things that work exactly the same. Oh, this kind doesn't come out unless you fast and pray. What? He just is, he's aware of that. So one of the things fasting does is it, 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 it can forward breakthrough. It can help in deliverance. It can break things off. It can break people free. So Jesus is fasting. And Jesus is experiencing temptation. Now, I'm gonna give you the three temptations, and my guess is some of them are not gonna feel that alluring to you at all. And they're not necessarily the temptations that you're going to face exactly, but there is something important about them. First is turn these stones into bread. Now, that one's a little obvious. He's, he hasn't been eating for 40 days. Turn these stones into bread. Two, cast yourself down and the angels will catch you. What? This one doesn't seem terribly tempting to me. Like, all right, this is like, all right, spiritually bungee jump and the, and, and, and the angels are gonna catch you. But, but there, there's something essential to what Jesus has come for that is being called into question by this temptation. Kneel and worship and you will have all the kingdoms of the world. Each temptation that Jesus faces is an opportunity to try and meet a real need in Jesus's life. Something even that is directly connected to his purpose and vocation in the world, but it is to do so in a shortcut. It is to to not take the Father's love and and plan into account, but to do things another way. How can Jesus be the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world if he dies of hunger in the wilderness? He needs to eat. He is going to eat. The temptation to eat in this moment is to turn the stones into bread. It's essentially to take a shortcut at meeting this real deep need of his life, but to do it out of his own resources, out of his own way, and not to trust the word and the plan of the Father. How can Jesus be Messiah of Israel and Savior of the world if he doesn't show his power in places of influence to to draw other people in? And we know actually Jesus is going to perform miracles and sometimes right in the moment when he could explode his influence by having them go and tell the story, he says, don't tell anyone. There's something strange, I think, going on about how Jesus keeps even his miraculous power quiet at certain points. It's like phenomenon alone is not enough to create hearts of faithfulness in us. Like just being amazed that a miracle is not quite, quite enough. Jesus seems to really be in tune with that spiritual reality. But how can he be the Messiah and Savior if he doesn't show his power? And that's the temptation. How can Jesus be Messiah of of Israel and Savior of the world if he doesn't have the power and authority over the kingdoms? How can he bring the kingdom of God to bear if if he has no authority over the kingdoms of the world? 
And that's the temptation. Each one is a profound question about who Jesus is and what he has come for. And really, as bizarre as they may feel to us reading them, right? He's in the desert for 40 days. They're such reasonable things. They, they cut at such important and real needs in his life. They're connected to the plan he's here for, even if they're slight distortions. Theologian Russell Moore says, temptation comes to us as a question of identity, a confusion of desire, and a contest of future. And Jesus experiences each, each of these. It's a question of his identity. It's a confusion of, of, of take real, normal, natural needs and real, normal, spiritual needs connected to your purpose and vocation, but meet them in a different way, circumventing the Father's plan for you. Listen to how it's put. This is by the enemy. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. That's a question of identity right at the beginning. If you are the Son of God, do this. This is the exact thing that Jesus had just heard the Father say, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's a, it's a contest of identity. It's a question of identity. Uh, uh, the next temptation, I will give you, survey, surveying the, 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 the world, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you wanna spend some time on a theological thing that needs to be unpacked, what on earth does the enemy mean by saying it's been given to me and I can give it to whoever he wants? Not gonna spend any time on it. Sorry to pique your curiosity. <laughs> if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus has come to recover the seeded authority of Adam and Eve. At his name, it says later that every knee is going to bow and every tongue can, is going to confess. But at this moment, the temptation is to grasp that outside of the Father's plan. I'll give you the, the, the last one. If you are the son of God, he said, then throw yourself down for here. Again, an assault on his identity and a question of his future. How is he going to meet the very real desires? Just start to think about this. Like, he's just been living in obscurity, working as a constru in construction with his family for 30 years, and now he's alone in the, in the wilderness. He's just been baptized by his cousin, and he has to begin this process of drawing in disciples and, and teaching them the kingdom of God. He, like, he has a, a monumental task ahead of him. Do you think he ever had a moment of, like, how on earth is this going to happen? And the enemy is offering him shortcuts at every turn, to know that God is with him, to gather the people to the kingdom. What would be better than a dramatic display of power in the center of the community at the height of the temple, right where everyone gathers? So let me say this about temptation. Temptation is real. It is personal and it is specific. When you experience temptation, very often it will be a question for you of your identity. It will come and attack the core of who you are and the core of who God says you are. It will be a confusion of your desires. It will be an attempt to try to meet a very real need, a need that you can say, this is unimpeachably true that I need to have this in my life, but to go about getting it in a way that is outside of God's, God's plan. And it is a contest for your future, for the reality of who God has called you to be and who he's inviting you to step into and, and, and live as. So I've mentioned briefly that this is a restaging of the moment that we see in Eden, and you see this exact same reality show up in the, in the Eden narrative. He, he, she, the, the enemy speaks to Eve, and he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
He says, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's a way for her, for them, to be like God. And then, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's what I just, just said, but um, it's a challenge to what God is like. It is a challenge to what God has said. And it's a challenge to who you are. This is the reality of how temptation comes into our life. It is an invitation to forget the faithfulness of God, to doubt God, and to doubt ourselves. It goes back to the moment in Eden. It goes back to the moment of Israel, the many moments of Israel in the wilderness. And the question for them was, who are we? Who are we going to be, right? They're trying to be... um, broken free from not only the physical slavery of Egypt, but the cultural slavery, the mentality of having been in that empire, who they were, what they wanted, how their lives were going to go, what their future is going to be. This is what they're tempted to uh, try and meet in shortcut ways. And I'm not gonna go into, for time's sake, go into all the different scenes we see in, in the wilderness, but the temptations are real, they are, they are specific and they are personal to Jesus, but they are also archetypes. The temptations that Jesus faces here in Luke are the archetype temptations that you and I face in our lives across all we are here. Um, same ones you see in Eden, same ones you see in, in the wilderness. The language that I most often use is, is questions uh, or temptations around your appetites, your ambition, and your approval. Right, these are, when I, when I say this, right, the appetites, ambition, and, and, and approval, this is the, the needs and cravings of your body. When you experience temptation, you're going to experience around the needs and cravings of your body for food, for sex, for comfort, for entertainment, appetites. Your ambition, this is the longing of your heart and mind for power, for prestige, for control, for significance, for accomplishment. Ambition, approval, this is the social needs of your heart and mind, and they are, of course, real. To be liked, to be accepted, to belong, to be, to be praised, to prove yourself. These are real and true archetypal needs of the human life, and God intends to meet them, and temptation is always an opportunity to shortcut that process and try to go after them on your own outside of God's plan. These are the pressure points of our lives, the exact areas of temptation, right? Russell Moore uses slightly different language. He says consumption, security, and status. But the point is the same. Listen to this. You will be tempted exactly as Jesus was because Jesus was being tempted exactly as we are. You will be tempted with consumption, security, status, read, (laughs) appetites, ambition, approval. You will be tempted to provide for yourself, to protect yourself, and to exalt yourself. At the core of these three is a common impulse to cast off the fatherhood of God. And to cast off the fatherhood of God is to make a terrible exchange. It means in the moment we are saying, I elevate this need above God. I will become God or I will let this thing become God. And then ultimately that thing can become and does become your master. Russell Moore goes on. Whatever the desire for food, for attention, for admiration, for adventure, for fame, for security, for whatever it is that you crave at the moment, once it's redirected away from its intended end, it becomes a master. The passions are allure. Unless they find resolution in the way God designed the universe by his wisdom, they are perpetually dissatisfied. 
ultimately then the desires always in search of fulfillment, never find it, finding it gain mastery over you. There is no upper limit of fame that can ever satisfy those who crave it. There is, crave it. There is no monetary figure at which those who long for financial success will ever be willing to say that's enough. There is no orgasm that feels good enough to last you a lifetime. As temptation moves onward and inward, you become insatiable for sin. You are caught. Right, the temptation always kind of works in the beginning like it's costing you nothing and promising you everything. And then as it moves onward and as it moves inward, it asks for more and more. It, it, that perpetually unsatisfied nature until eventually it is costing you everything and really giving you nothing. You see this heightened in something like addiction, right? Where in the beginning the substance gave you courage or, 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 or a good feeling or, or, or moved you across the room into social engagement and then by the end, right, you're spending your last dollar and, ch and chugging a, you know, vodka from a plastic bottle and getting nothing from it. It's literally not working anymore. You can't be sober and you can't be drunk. It's a picture of what, what any idol of the heart ultimately does to us, any substitute thing that we put in the place of God. So the last thing we need to look at as we're closing is what was Jesus' response? Because that is gonna say a lot to us. And then what is the Father's response? Which sometimes I don't think we see, but it's really important in the story. So in each instance of temptation, in each moment of opportunity for shortcut to, to meet this deep real need out of uh, some other resource other than God, Jesus resists by taking, uh, by, by, by taking the, the lie or the distortion that the enemy has presented him and speaking the truth of God's word over it and to it. So in each instance, the refrain that Jesus says is what? It is written. So turn these stones into bread. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't end his fast in miraculous power right there. And, and the reason he gives in this moment is man does not live. It is written man does not live by bread alone. He's given this opportunity to fall down and worship and to be given the kingdoms of the world. And he says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He's asked to throw himself down at the pinnacle of the temple in a moment where everyone would see and it would be so obvious that God's power was with him. And he says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So in each case, Jesus responds to the lie with the truth and promise of God. He fights the temptations of the enemy with the words and promises of God. If you miss everything else that I've said this morning, write that down. Jesus fights back against the lies and the temptation that are, are presented to him with the truth and promises of the word of God. When you face temptation, the way you will make it through without caving in is to run to the words of God. I'm not saying that you always have to open your Bible in order to make it through, but you need to have the word of God living in you. You need to run to God's word in worship. You need to run to a friend who can speak the word of God to you in the midst of confusion. When you're feeling that taking this action against God's way is the most reasonable thing in the world, it's absolutely what you need to do. You need to have someone there to hold you and speak to you and say, no, please remember who you are. Please remember what you really want most. Please remember your inheritance and future. Like I'm not saying that the only way to fight temptation is to open, open the Bible, but we need to have the Bible in us. Yeah. 
You will make it through temptation without caving in when you learn to run to the word of God, to speak its truth and promises to the face of temptation, but it's also to run into the embrace of the Father. It's to say, I choose your way, God. Jesus is fasting to say, I'm hungry for the Father. I need God more than anything else. And when the tempting moment comes, he speaks the truth of the word of God. This is one reason that our biblical illiteracy can be devastating. I'm not saying this to, 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 to guilt you, but when we don't know the scriptures, we don't know the promises that we can use for warfare in those moments when we're being tempted at the core level of our identity, at the core level of our deepest desires, and at the core level of our future. If you don't know what God has said about you, then you will probably believe what the enemy is saying about you in the form of accusation, in the form of insecurity, in the form of fear, in the form of you need to make sure you, you shore up your life in your way, right? And that anxiety, the fear, like that's how the voice of the enemy comes to us. Suddenly temptation doesn't feel like compromise. It just feels like this is normal. It's not an issue of worship. This is just the way people do things. This is how it happens now. You don't understand. It's just, a, it, 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 it's not a matter of your identity or your desires or your future. It's just convenience. It's just a little indulgence. It's just something I deserve. It's just a piece of entitlement. Jesus' response in the most simple terms is that he cries out, it is written. He clings to the Father's words and he clings to the Father's way. Interestingly, every single thing he quotes is from Israel's time in the wilderness. Twice from Deuteronomy 6 and once from Deuteronomy 8, he says, it is written, and he gives the heart of God for his people in the middle of the wilderness. That's Jesus' response. He, he runs to the embrace of the Father through the word of God. That is our response in temptation. And now there are tools for how to do that. Sometimes that means some of you will know, and you're particularly addicting temptations, if you let the struggle go on in your mind, any amount of time, it's over. You're, you're gonna give in. You have, to let, you have to take the thought captive the moment you recognize it and replace it, right? When you have intense anxiety and, and it's playing in your head like a ticker tape, you have, to, you have to take the promise from the word of God and literally replace it in your mind and begin to dwell on that promise from God. When lust has become such a part of your life that, that you're, you're utterly mastered by it. The moment the thought comes into your mind, you have to replace it with a promise from, with a promise from God. And that is, that is how we say it is written in the way Jesus does in this wilderness moment. That's Jesus' response. Now, the last thing I want you to see is what the Father does. The first thing is the Father sends comfort. On the beginning, the bookend of this story, before Jesus goes into the wilderness, as the Father says over his life, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then after the temptation, in Mark, it says this specifically, he sends the angels to minister to him. He sends comfort. You have to know, God is not unaware of the deep needs of your life. God is not unaware of your identity, your desires, or your future. And the enemy is gonna come to you with a really plausible shortcut but if you will resist it and you will say it is written and you will cling to the way of God and the heart of the Father, God will send you comfort. It might not come exactly in the timing that you first expected or exactly in the manner you would, have, you would have prescribed for yourself. But often looking back, you will come to see, oh my gosh, that was so much better than me getting my way or following my temptation in that particular moment. 
I, 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 I've just had a lot of experience working with folks in, in recovery, and I've had many of them who've wrestled with addiction say to me things like, there have been many nights I have gone to sleep because that's all I could do, wanting to pick up or wanting to use. But I have never woken up the next morning and wished I had. There's been many moments where I really wanted to, but when I got through the temptation and God sent the comfort, or I woke up, the, and I was, not, I was so glad that I, I, that I didn't. And that's the reality is the Father sends comfort. The second thing that I want you to see, and this is massive, is the Father provides better. And I'm not gonna have time now to go into all the specifics of what I mean by this, but turn the stones into bread. You remember a little miracle a little later in Jesus' life when nobody has lunch? He takes some loaves and some fishes and he multiplies them and he feeds 5,000. And that's just a hair because actually it was like more like 35,000 when you count up all the families. And you know what that was a recreation of? Moses in the wilderness, right at this moment of compromise. God sees the future moment where Jesus is gonna feed people with his words. He's gonna feed people with, with, with the bread and the loaves. He sees forward to the moment where Jesus is gonna sit with his disciples, the moment before he's betrayed. and He's gonna give them a meal that they will celebrate across the ages. The broken body and shed blood of Jesus, not only is he not going to take the compromise the enemy's offering, he's going to become the feast. God provides so much better. He feeds the 5,000, but he also becomes the feast for us. If you will hang on through the moments of temptation, you will find the provision of the Father is so much better than the temptation of the enemy. Kingdoms of authority to fall down at his feet in worship. Now, when you get to the end of Jesus' life in Matthew, in Matthew 28, he comes to his disciples and he's passing on the movement to them. He says, I want you to go into all the world and, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them the way of life I've taught you, teach them to obey everything. You know what he says just before that? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right here in the temptation of the wilderness is the shortcut. And yet Jesus is going to win the right to all authority in heaven and on earth through what he's going to do in his life, his death, and resurrection. And then when he has all authority in heaven and on earth, guess what he does? He gives it to you and I to be his representatives of love and renewal and the kingdom of God in the world. Throw yourself down. And it'll be proven that you're protected. You'll have this, this sort of like demonstrable way to, to, to show God is with you and you have God's power. You know what happens in the next scene because we just looked at it for eight weeks in Epiphany? The people try to throw him off a cliff and guess what? He's protected. In every single instance where the enemy offers Jesus a shortcut, he stays the way of Yahweh. He stays the way of the Father, and God provides exponentially. The enemy will always play on your scarcity mentality. It will always trump up your fear, trump up accusation, trump up insecurity, trump up a, a lie that there's not going to be enough. And God, God will say, if you'll trust me through this, I'll show that I can provide for you infinitely more than you could ask or imagine. And she write, at the heart of our resistance to temptation is love. Just pause for one second. I want you to learn, I want to learn how to fight temptation by love, not just by ramping up willpower. 
At the heart of our resistance to temptation is love and loyalty to God who has already called us his beloved children in Christ, who holds out before us the calling to follow him in the path which leads to true glory. In that glory lies the true happiness, the true fulfillment, neither, which neither word nor flesh nor devil can begin to imitate. The last two things I want to say to you, and I know I've said the last thing several times, but I mean it now. Is, is Jesus' victory is our victory. Because I want to tell you, the way forward for you as sons and daughters of God and followers of Jesus is to learn to fight temptation by love and specifically to learn to fight temptation by it is written, by the word and promises of God, by running to the heart of God. But I want to tell you this. If you failed to resist temptation and you feel absolutely overrun by something in your mind or in your behavior, in your life, or your thoughts. I want to tell you this. It's not on you to be, to be like ramping this up, to go from where you are right now to totally free from that on your own, by your own willpower. Jesus' victory is your victory. One of the clearest examples of this is, is you see this in the, in, the, in the Hebrew scriptures. David goes out into the wilderness, the anointed king, to face the enemy of the people of God in Goliath. And he wins a victory over the enemy of, of the people of God. And then the whole nation shares in that victory. Jesus is recreating that exact thing. He's going out into the wilderness to face the enemy of the people of God. The victory that he wins, the whole people of God share in that victory. And so you can hide yourself wherever you are on the temptation spectrum in the person of Jesus and let his victory be your victory and that is gospel. That is the good news. But when Jesus' victory becomes your victory, then you begin to learn that Jesus' way can also be your way because it's a recovery of the fact that you don't have to obey to get God's love. You resist temptation and obey because you have God's love. That's your identity. You begin to know that these distorted desires the world has sold to me, marketed so well, actually don't satisfy. There's very few voices in the world that have enough wisdom to lead me to abundant life. But Jesus promises to give me life and give it to the full. And so I'm gonna form my desires. I'm gonna delight myself in the Lord and let him give me the desires of my heart from that place. And then I know my future is with him. I'm a co-heir with Christ. Do you know that the Father loves you and sees you if you were hidden in Jesus the same way he sees Jesus? What? That is gospel. Jesus' victory is our victory and Jesus' way is our way. That's it. Oh, wow. Thanks. You're clapping because it's over. I get it. Um, so here's the thing. Let's just... Let's just worship now and pray and, and, and eat this meal that God has given us. And let's really care for one another in these next moments. I want to invite you to go ahead and stand. Earlier when I was doing that thing with my hand, and I was like, the, the lie of the enemy is here, and you replace it with a promise from God. One of the easiest ways, one of the most reliable ways to do that process is to worship. Because when you're worshiping, right, very often we're singing the promises of God back to God. We're singing the truth about God's character back to him. Or we're singing out a prayer of our heart's longing to, to, to God. And so we're, we're, we're singing that over the lie of the enemy. So as we worship, we're fighting temptation. As we are nourished by the bread and the cup on the table, 
we're fighting temptation. And then some of you, in any way, if you feel trapped right now in your thoughts or, or, or your behavior and you need freedom, you need to, to see temptation broken in your life, you need a way out, God promises to provide that. These rugs are here for you to come and pray. People will be up here to pray with you. You don't have to share any more details than you want to. Coming forward doesn't mean you're in particular, a particular mess. It just means you want to respond to God. So let's respond in worship, in the meal, in prayer. Heavenly Father, bless your church as we respond to your word. Bless her as she comes to the table. Nourish us with your truth and promises. Set us free from the temptations that have plagued us. Reinforce our true identity. Heal and direct our desires. Help us to be sure of our future with you. Bless this, this meal. In Jesus' name. Amen. Churches, you're ready. Come forward, receive communion. Stay for prayer. We're all going to worship as we push back. Amen.